0: You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode 295. What is the role of a resource parent in serving commercially sexually exploited child victims? With Nicole Stratman. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking podcast here at Vanguard University's Global Center for Women and Justice in Orange County, California. This is the show where we empower you, to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And today we have my good friend, Nicole Stratman, with us. Nicole has a master's in social work. She's been in child welfare here in Orange County as a social worker for 23 years. She's the former CSEC coordinator and currently is administrative manager Manager for the Program for Resource Families Recruitment, Development, and Support. Nicole, welcome to the podcast.
1: Yes, thank you, Sandy. It is a long title there, but yes, thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: I think your job is bigger than it used to be.
1: It certainly has expanded, that is for sure.
0: And I appreciate so much what you're doing. We just finished the annual Insured Justice Conference, and our theme was finding a way home. And one of the problems we've learned over the years is that placements – are very challenging, and even when you have a placement for a victim of child commercial sexual exploitation, the child may not stay in that placement. And so family-based care is going to have a better result. So I always thought of child placements through our child welfare program as foster family placements, but now we're using the language of resource parenting. Explain how that changed and what a resource parent is.
1: Yes, I'd be happy to. So we had a transition to that using that terminology resource parent from foster parent back in 2013. There was a the passing of the Senate Bill 1013. And it was the California Department of Social Services that guided us in changing our approach to working with families who provide care for children in foster care. We have progressively over the years had the goal of placing children in relative or close family friends of the child, somebody that they already had a built-in relationship with. And we used to have a separate assessment and approval and licensing process, Dif- a relative or family friend, that was different than our foster care licensing process. California Department of Social Services and the Senate bill said, you know, we really need to have our families who are taking in children all have the same type of training to really understand the unique needs of a child coming to care. And the term resource parent is not only in California. There's many states. I don't have the number, though. There are many states across the United States who are using the term resource parent. And resource families or resource parents, they include individuals, couples, families. So it's really open to a wide spectrum of adults who are interested in providing support and a home for children. They can be related, have a mentoring relationship or no previous relationship at all. And that's sort of the idea of foster parent that we all think of, that they didn't have a previous relationship. We still encourage those in the community who would like to be a resource parent to an unrelated child to come forward. We really need those homes as well. And so a resource parent is, the purpose of also switching over to resource parent was designed to prioritize family homes over group homes and institutionalized living situations. And so what that did, again, it expanded our ability to have family, friends, and relatives of the child approved through a training process that they were equipped to be able to care for the children and those that they're related to. It's really to increase the capacity to have children successfully in out-of-home care until they can reunify with their parents, because that's always our Number one goal is to reunify. And what the resource parenting process also did is that it allowed a person to become a resource parent and have the ability to adopt if the case were to wind up that way. Prior to this, the adoption process was, it was a whole different set of requirements and added additional time and additional training. And we decided and agreed with CDSS that it was really best to have all that training up front and along the way so that if it became a situation that the child in their care was needing a permanent placement and adoption is the most permanent, that there wasn't additional hoops to jump through, that they could really provide that permanency much quicker and have all the training and all the support that's needed at that point in time.
0: So when I'm scanning and listening to speakers talking about rescuing child victims of sex trafficking and people building shelters and programs, we have 20 beds, that can actually not be the best plan for the child because it can lead to this issue that you just mentioned around institutionalization. And so what would be some of the harms to the child if that's the strategy that we predominantly use?
1: Right. So if we are, you know, putting children in congregate care and institution institutions, they're not getting that family nurturing environment that we really know that kids and children can thrive on and grow from. They can learn from each other and maybe learn some bad behaviors or bad choices and influence teens, influence each other in the best of circumstances. Mm. And so in the circumstance, when we have a child that comes from a, a hard place and from trauma and commercial sexual exploitation, it's even more challenging. And when we put those kids together, they can maybe feed off of each other and encourage each other to continue making those bad choices. So we really want to put our youth in care, especially our CSec youth, into a family, into a family-based environment, to provide them with that additional support that they really could benefit from. Research has demonstrated, so this is coming from something that we do here in Orange County, where we are a quality parenting initiative county, which means that we really value the role of a caregiver, the biological parent in the, the growth and development of that child. And so they have found that research has demonstrated that children and youth really need consistent and effective parenting to thrive. And you just can't get that type of parenting in an institutional setting. You get that when you have a smaller environment, maybe just a few kids in the home, with their siblings, that, of course, that's fine, whatever the number are, but a smaller number of kids in the home um, one or two parents that are there to really credit effective parenting to help them really thrive
0: so i I love the research that shows how uh, young people and even adults who grew up in dysfunctional families, they have this natural desire to return to their family roots. And so providing support for that family to have a healthy home for a child is going to be preventative in the long run for further challenges. But there are still times when we have to find family-based caretakers that are not kinship models, that are not biologically related, and we've always called them foster parents. Why did we change the name from foster?
1: It was really that Senate bill in 2013 that changed that that phrasing, because what we want is for the families that are providing care, whether they're relatives or not, to be a resource to other children. We have had situations in which we had a person become a resource parent for their own relative kin. And that relative kin reunified home with their family. And that relative adult kin, who is now a resource parent, decided this was a good experience. They were able to give back and really help a child in care and have continued to keep their home open for other non-related children to be placed in their home. And so they become a resource, not only for their own family or, not, or close family friend that they provided a home for, but now other children in care who need a family-based setting, who maybe didn't have a relative or a family friend that could take them in at that time. So it's it using the term resource parent really expands sort of our idea of all that they can do.
0: And this is a term that's spreading in other states. And I think this model will grow and we'll see more and more evidence of how effective it is. Let's talk about why we need more resource parents. It it feels like there's a critical shortage of family-strength-based homes for children who are really on the high end of need for emotional support, for physical support, for mental health issues, not to mention some of the consequences of being trafficked that are physical as well.
1: Yes, we are absolutely in a critical situation where we need many more resource parents for all of our kids in care, and particularly those that are um, have come with more complex needs and trauma. And this is, I was on a meeting this morning, actually, that had professionals across the United States. And the question was posed, do you have enough resource parents in your community right now? And overwhelmingly, everybody in the child welfare profession who was on the call replied with no, no, no. It was over and over. We do not have enough. So we are in critical need right now. And we know that kids really do better when they're in a family-based setting. Whenever a child cannot live with their parent, and so we need a another nurturing environment for them to be in. And what we also know that resource parents can do very, very well is that when we're partnering with them, when we use the QPI model in teaming with resource parents, is they can really be a role model to the biological parent or the guardian who is working towards reunification with that child. They can be that role model, they can set the example, they can, they can do parenting classes in a way informally and really provide that structure and support that the biological or guardian needs to be able to achieve the goal and, and do the things that they need to do. To provide a safe home for their child to return home to.
0: It sounds like you need a lot of patience as you go through this process with resource parents.
1: Yes. Yes. Everybody needs a, a lot of patience. It's, it's challenging to be a resource parent because there's many dynamics at work from caring for a child to working with the biological family to also working with the court and the requirements that court has for the child to have appropriate visitation and therapy and extracurricular activities. And so there is a lot of patience and a lot of collaboration between the biological parent, child welfare, the court, and the child themselves on really what we can do to support that child in their healing while they work towards reunifying back home with their parent.
0: So, Thinking of how complex that is for the resource parent, what kind of support is available for them when they take on that unbelievable task?
1: Yes. So there's a few different supports that are out there. So there's a, in California, there are two ways in which you become a resource parent. You can go directly through the county in which you live to become an approved resource parent, do the required trainings and have the home inspection, that type of thing. We also have foster family agencies, and those are oftentimes community-based organization, nonprofit organizations, that also can approve a family to be a resource parent. And whether it's the county or through a foster family agency, there is an additional support social worker that is available to that resource parent. In a foster family agency, it's more regular and consistent, here with the county, we actually have a team of social workers that handle our talk line. We call it our talk line. And a resource parent can call that talk line and have somebody at available to them to talk through the issues they might be having. We also, in California, we have the Family Urgent Response System, or what we call FERS. It is a statewide resource for resource parents. And for children in care, that if they're struggling or have any questions, behavior issues, or just maybe feeling like they they don't know what to do in that moment, and they just need some help, they can contact this phone number that's a 24-7 support phone number. They can call or text and request assistance with managing whatever the behavior is, which may also include somebody responding in person their home to help them do some crisis intervention if that's needed. We also have resources such as therapy available. We have, you know, resources in the the community that we connect the children and families with to have ongoing care. We are very lucky here in California, particularly in Orange County, that we have so many different community-based organizations that provide a lot of support to children and families from parenting to their therapeutic services to wrap around, we even have the ability to provide wrap around services which is is providing a parent partner and a youth partner and case management to a child in care, the caregiver and their biological parents as well.
0: Wow. It's kind of like having a soft landing cushion wrapped around you. Yes.
1: Yes, they're fabulous.
0: So how do you become a resource parent?
1: To become a resource parent, you first need to attend an orientation. We in Orange County have our own orientations, but you have to attend an orientation. That's required for the California Department of Social Services resource family approval process. You have to attend an orientation. We have them here in Orange County on a monthly basis, and that begins the process We in Orange County, we also like to have a conversation with the folks that do come to our orientation afterwards to see if they're ready. One of the things that might make somebody not quite ready for becoming a resource parent is they're going to be moving, (laughs) which seems like you forget about something like that. It's very, maybe exciting. Maybe somebody has a great opportunity to move into a new home. But for us, that's going to, that's going to put a barrier because we do have to assess the home environment. We have to look at the sleeping arrangements and the bedrooms and the yard there, you know, or if it's, if it's a town hall, whatever the makeup of the place is like. So really an orientation and then having a conversation with one of our recruiters about if you're ready and some of the things that it takes also becoming a resource parent in California, you must complete 12 hours of training before you even have. A child placed in your home, and you have to be CPR and first aid certified. So we do have a lot of requirements that must take place before a child come into the home. But that's really to help both sides to make sure the resource family is really ready, to make sure that we have those open lines of communication. Our foster family agencies that also do the same approval process have their own requirements. We all have to have a minimum of 12 hours of training. Some foster family agencies require more, but we all have to have a minimum of 12 hours of training before you can have a child placed in your home.
0: Okay, so you said something that often I'm sitting at the table with a lot of my peers and... I get confused because I understand, I think, about a resource parent, and then here you are managing resource parents, and then you're talking about foster parents. So we still have foster parents?
1: Did I say foster parents? I may have used that word because we do go back and forth. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, and, and I think to the point is that we have a lot of organizations that have foster parent programs and they haven't changed the language so right. how do we navigate that
1: that's that's a really good question so resource family approval is the process in which to be able to have a foster child a child in in protective custody to be placed in your home in California it's the resource family approval whether you're a relative family friend or unrelated Everybody is, becomes a resource parent, but because the term foster parent is so much more widely known and still used in some parts and many parts of the United States, you find that many of us will defer back to that language because people recognize what that is. When we use the term foster, we're like, we realize, oh, that must mean somebody who takes care of a child in foster care. But the ter- so many agencies still use foster. We actually have our sort of a tagline that we use in some of our recruiting materials is let's foster together. Mm. So we do still here in the county, we'll use that terminology. But so technically it's a resource family. And we, well, I'm telling you, it's been since 2013. We're still struggling with that change because we do go back and forth, but it's been resource family since. 2013, it was in 2015, 2016 here in Orange County that we started making those changes.
0: Okay, that's really helpful. And I love hearing that this is a national conversation. And whenever we transition and try to improve circumstances through policy and programs, there's always going to be a learning curve. Yes. I have another question. Uh, I think for myself I know that I don't have the capacity to have a child in my home and yet at the same time I want to be helpful. How can someone become a support but not actually become a caregiver?
1: That's a great question and and it's a common question. We even have a flyer that really kind of goes through if you can't you know, adopt, is the most permanent and engaged level with a child. And if you can't adopt, then foster you can't foster. Then mentor. If you can't mentor, then volunteer. If You can't volunteer, then advocate. Right. And so um, there's so many different sort of levels that you can become involved in for children who are in who are in care currently. From mentoring on a volunteer kind of more casual type of basis, programs like. Big Brothers, Big Sisters, YMCA have some of those kinds of things. But one of my favorite ways to support a child specifically in foster care is through court appointed special advocates. And those are volunteers that are appointed by judges to advocate for the best interests of children that are involved in the juvenile court system because they're a victim of abuse or neglect. And they become very involved in the process that the child is involved in through the foster care system, and they will advocate in court via writing in reports or verbally, but also in, in meetings and really become the voice of a, a child. So court-appointed special advocate, or CASA, is a really great way to have a, be able to be a voice for a child throughout this process. But we also have many, or, many county and other organizations here in California and across really the United States have ways through the faith or other non-faith communities to partner with their child welfare. We are relaunching our partnership and we're renaming it Hearts in Motion. Uh So if you are, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, I love it. Yes, it was. uh, We're moving away from Faith in Motion because we really want to provide as many open doors as possible for those in the community that may not relate to a faith community, may not belong to a faith community, but they want to do good for for children. So we have Hearts in Motion where we have some, again, we've had Faith in Motion since 2007. So it's really going to be the same type of work and partnership where we have some individuals or groups that maybe put together backpacks once a year. But then we have others that put on an event once a month for our children in care. Maybe it's coordinating roller skating one evening for our teenagers and, and being present for that and having the ability to maybe build a relationship or a mentor. We've had a situation where we had somebody under that circumstance who was volunteering through their organization to be part of our now called hearts in motion to work with our teenagers who built a relationship and was ultimately able to become a resource parent for that youth. And so it, you can start in a kind of a lower barrier way of connection with kids and it might evolve to something more. But our hearts in motion spectrum of donating something to spending time with a child to you know creating an event, also what you could do to support a child if it's if a child's not in foster care is just really being a safe, stable adult in a child's life. I've said that before when I've done presentations where we all can really make a difference, whether it's a neighbor, a niece, a nephew, grandchild, uh, maybe you're a coach or a teacher, and there's a child that's around that you can just be a safe person, a safe adult, someone that will listen and be there
0: for them. So I'm a grandma, everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I have done in my own family is I see my daughter and I can tell she needs a break. So I say, you guys go somewhere. I'm going to take care of the kids. Is there a way to be that extended family for a resource parent where you just give them a weekend off?
1: There is a way to do that. Yes. If you, have a re- if you know of a resource parent in your life, whether you've met them through your faith organization or someplace else, you have the ability as a resource parent, like any other parent, to decide if you need caretaking. We call that prudent parenting. So you are allowed to use a prudent parenting mind and determine, I know this person. I trust this person. They can babysit or take care of the child for the weekend. That would be okay to do so on a prudent parenting uh, decision. We. I'm so glad you brought this up, though, because... We are expanding something here in Orange County, and I know it's been done in some other places and called different things, but we're calling care communities, which we're starting with some of our faith-based organizations some of our churches, where they have a known resource parent in their congregation, and then they have additional families in that same congregation that know that resource family and can be exactly that. They can be that support person. Maybe they can bring them food, if they're in a situation where they need food or help transport to therapy or transport to a extracurricular activity, something like that, or even yes, give that a little bit of a a respite break for the caregiver. And so if we can build those natural supports for a resource parent, it's really good because then they do become that extended family in a way, just as you are the grandmother Mm -hmm. to your grandchild, you know? And so um, we also do have respite though available where we do have resource parents who are approved, who are specifically available to provide respite. So a week or two at a time or, or a weekend or overnight or something like that. So we do have people that are approved as well, but we love the idea of volunteers who can step up and become part of our care communities. We have them participate in some background checks and some things like that, of course. But they're really there to support that resource parent because we all do need a break. I'm also a, a mother and <laughs> <laughs> and I have uh, a lot of help from my family when I need a break or just need help because I can't be everywhere at once.
0: So then if I'm thinking about a primary resource parenting situation, is your program going to then be able to support the extended family or family friends in, be so, beyond just a background check so that they can babysit? Would there be opportunities for training or I don't, I'm not even sure what I'm asking.
1: <laughs> That's all right. We don't do anything extra for that. Our care communities though, not us at the County level, but our care communities are that we're kind of formalizing where we're, again, we're calling it the care community through a church they do provide the training. They will provide training and support. Yes. So if it's formalized as a care community, if it's just a, a friend, a friend, a neighbor, for example, and you need a little bit of help after school or something like that for, you know, watching the child for a couple hours here or there, things like that, that's a prudent parenting decision. But when we are talking something much more longer and more in depth, then the care community is really the way to go. And because because of that additional training and support that the church will provide. And I think we have Olive Crest right now. Olive Crest is a nationwide organization. And in Orange County, they're they're a big support of care communities. I'm not sure if they've expanded beyond Orange County with care communities, but um, they're an excellent resource for
0: that. I love that. I'm very aware of their work and appreciate yeah. it as well. I have learned so much, and I will put links in the show notes to a lot of the resources that you've mentioned. I'm grateful this is expanding nationwide. but. Can a foster youth be adopted?
1: I'm so glad that you asked that. This this comes up a lot. And because we're oftentimes it's we're referred to as the ability to be able to adopt. And while foster children can be adopted, in most cases, the goal is going to be reunification, to really return that youth back to the care of the biological family or to the legal guardians. However, oftentimes it does happen where reunification cannot occur. Perhaps the parent was unable to achieve what was required of them per the court orders. And so then we are really looking for permanency and the most permanent home for a child is through adoption. And so it is possible. It is possible. And that does provide the, the most permanency. But our number one goal here in child welfare, and this is across the United States, is for reunification. But we always do ask a resource parent, should things not work out? Do you have the ability? And it's okay if somebody doesn't. It's okay if somebody doesn't. But um, if, if they can, then we, we make note of that just in case.
0: Wow. I am <laughs> so grateful for the work that you're doing. And I want to say your title again because it really, covers a wide scope. So you are the administrative manager for our child welfare program for resource families, recruitment development and support. And I think yes. that mission is like wrapping a, a soft blanket around a child so that they feel safe. Last uh, opportunity before we have to sign off because our time is up, what do you want our community to know about why resource parents are so important?
1: I want them to know that resource parents are so important because we need to have a safe family home for our children until they're ready ready to go back to their own biological home or their their legal guardians home wherever they came from and We are really there to support the caregiver in this process. We want to work together as a team to support the child, to support the family, and to be able to move our children out of congregate care. We in Orange County have... Very few of our kids that are in congregate care. It's it's, it's not a, a great majority by any means, but really one or two is too many, right? And so, mm-hmm. if we can get more of our kids into a in a family based setting to support not only the child but the fa- the family in which they come from, I think we will see more success in our children in the long run.
0: Thank you so much, Nicole Stratman. I am very excited about seeing this kind of model expand. I know in a previous episode, we talked about the consequences of institutional care in big orphanages in other countries. So this is a growing movement to address that issue by building stronger models of family-based care. So, I'm inviting you to take the next step as a listener of this podcast. Go over to our website, endinghumantrafficking.org, and follow up, find the resources we've mentioned in this conversation, learn more about our Anti-Human Trafficking Certificate Program, find links to our recent conference, Ensure Justice, Finding a Way Home, at the Global Center for Women and Justice. And of course, I'm looking forward to our next conversation in two weeks. Bye, everybody.